Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written almost three dozen cookbooks, including the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, written for every size of air fryer that you can imagine, as well as Instant Pot Bible Copycat Recipes, all about how to make your restaurant favorites at home. And that leads us into the first segment of our podcast episode this week, How to Find a Great Restaurant. You know, as food writers, we travel around a lot. We like to eat in new places. So it is important for us to find new places to eat. And a lot of people ask us, well, how do you find where you want to eat? It's um, a tough question. And it's actually uh, a question of, you know, like searching for a needle in a haystack. But we should say first off that there is a way in which many people travel, especially when they're on the road, and they eat at places that they know, like Shake Shack or Olive Garden or these kind of places. And I think that has to do with comfort, right? Well, yeah, you're traveling, you're in a new place that you don't know, so you may feel out of sorts. And so you feel like, okay, at least I can control something, right? Because you're in a new city, (laughs) maybe even in a new country, and you're not in control of a lot of things. So this way, you feel like I'm at least in control of the burger I can have, right? Yeah, you can. And I think there is a stress factor we all know in travel. And of course, eating at airports is horrible in general <laughs> um, bring I mean, food from home oh, always bring food from home i, I saw a, i saw a, a twitter post yesterday that cracked me up i had to read it to bruce about this woman said she took a 10-hour flight to europe and the guy in the seat next to her was just like this badass nut who arrived with a t-shirt and jeans a baseball cap no neck pillow nothing to read nothing to listen to no earbuds and a cup of a paper cup of coffee and just like this guy is this guy is doing this 10-hour flight like solo with I just n- nothing to help him i hope that cup of coffee was from outside the plane because you know you should never ever drink okay. coffee on a plane that's a different matter and we'll talk about that in <laughs> perhaps in another episode why you should never drink the water on a plane but that's a different matter <laughs> so Okay, how then do you find a great restaurant? And we are really always doing this. And I would say that one of the number one ways that um, you can find a really great restaurant is, and this is a key, please stay out of the tourist areas. Oh, definitely. I mean, if you come to New York City, sure, okay, yes, you're going to find the Olive Garden and other places in Times Square. But this is a high tourist area. The prices are going to be jacked up. And you're not going to find the local places that represent kind of the best of New York food, whether it's downscale food, like a very down and dirty Chinese restaurant, let's say Chinese American restaurant, Sichuan restaurant, Hunan restaurant, whatever it is, or up food, you know, vegan Korean food. And you want to go to the neighborhoods. You want to go where people live and that's where people are eating. Um, So we tend to do that. We also like to stay in those neighborhoods when we travel and that helps us. Now, there's a... I'm going to add too that, you know, we have eaten fantastic meals in Paris, but a lot of the fantastic meals we've eaten are in the 13th, the 15th, the arrondissements that are far out from the central tourist areas. We've had a lot of bad meals. <laughs> in the center Ooh. of Paris. In the first, the second, the seventh. We've had a lot of bad meals and places like that. And good meals too. But I'm just saying we have a better chance of having
getting a local great wild meal in which we feel like um, maybe we're getting something that not every single U.S. citizen gets when we go outside of the central tourist areas. When we travel to rural areas and there aren't a lot of places around, I do rely on asking Siri sometimes to find us a place and then Siri will suggest two or three and then I have to get online and try and look them up. But we were once driving home from QVC. We were selling our book on QVC and we were driving home and it was nine o'clock at night and Mm -hmm. we were getting near Scranton and we were starving and Mark was driving. Don't ever get near Scranton and starving. <laughs> but uh, we were getting near Scranton. And, well, no, actually, maybe you should. I was driving. You were driving, and you said to me, find me a place to eat. So I just said, Siri, find me a place to eat. So, of course, Siri didn't have many choices because we were in the middle of nowhere. And this Mexican restaurant popped up. And we're like, well, the reviews looked pretty good. People were saying they had amazing tamales yeah, and, and homemade sauce. I should say that when you say we were in the middle of nowhere, we weren't in Scranton. Scranton is not no. the middle of nowhere, but we were outside of Scranton coming into it. And we were trying to figure out where we were headed, where we needed to point at the car. And again, this Mexican food restaurant came up as one of the search. And so we decided to do it. And I put in, get us there. So Siri gave us directions and we're driving through this residential neighborhood. We were. And Mark's like, no, I think you got it wrong. There's nothing here. And right. And we it was pull, just all houses. Yeah, so we pull up in front of this house, and it says, you have arrived. So we get out of the car, and we go up to the front door, and there was a woman there turning the sign from open to closed. But she saw us and said, oh, you can come in. The restaurant was her living room. It was literally her living room. Wait, with the TV on, with a soccer game on, <laughs> a console TV, like out of the 1970s, and card tables with uh, tablecloths and folding chairs. And she was cooking in her kitchen. Because, right. It was her living <laughs> so wild it was her living room and we ended up ordering the tamales and the mole and it was just spectacular food it was an unbelievable find so if you're willing to look around and go down and dirty and ask siri for recommendations and not take the first ones not take the shake shack Mm -hmm. or whatever comes up first red robin but instead kind of scroll down the list and look on beyond the first and remember too when you ask any uh, social media search engine, when you ask uh, Google, when you ask Siri, don't forget that large chains pay for high placement. They do. So you need to scroll past the obvious people, you know, past, I don't know, again, Red Robin, past McDonald's, past all these places that you already know if you want to scroll down. So my advice is, Consider, you know, the third page, the beginning <laughs> of your choices in in a social media search. And be open to new things. Don't be afraid of it. It's just food and it's just a restaurant. And it's, as we like to say to each other, is it the last meal we're going to eat? No. I mean, if it is, well, well okay. Yeah. But, I mean, we were in Texas once visiting Mark's family at Christmas. And Texas is a you know, big state. And we were in Dallas. It was a big city, tons of restaurants. Yeah, I don't know where this is going. Why is it and big? Why is big important? Because, this could do go because on. there's a lot of places to eat. There Mark's are. parents tend to go to the same places over and over. So well, we said we wanted to go someplace okay, new. Cut them some slack. They were in their late 80s. They were. So, so they went the same places, of course. So their hairdresser told them about this this Mexican restaurant, a little family-run Mexican restaurant. And listen, we heard that like the Bushes go there, that George 
W and Laura ate there a lot. And let me say that my mother's hairdresser, who she had for uh, 30 years, was named, and I'm not making this up, Mr. B. So, <laughs> Miss, I'm not Mr. making B this up. Mr. B liked Rafa's. Mr. B liked Rafa's. It's true. So, we convinced Mark's parents that we need to go there, even though it wasn't the chain they knew. And they're like, okay, we can go there. But the whole drive over there, Mark's mother was so nervous because she didn't know what they'd have. And I don't it's know if true. it's going to be good. And, and, and a but she so was don't, very worried. Don't be. It's just food. And what did we order? We ordered brisket enchiladas and barbecued quail. It was kind of mm-hmm. this amazing it place for office in Dallas, a place that I would highly recommend. I would also recommend if you're looking around for places to eat that you check out the Eater Essential Restaurant Guides to Cities, particularly if you're going to cities, if, if you're going to Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco or Toronto, check out the Eater selection of cities because Eater publishes a list and it's updated generally quarterly. It can be the Eater 38, the Eater 32, the Eater 21 for Montreal, for various cities, name the city. And they're global and it's eater.com yep. Yep. and just put in the city you want to go to and it'll show you the latest and the nice thing about the eater list is it's everything from the super high-end fancy fine dining down to the bagel shops and the chocolate shops and the pizza places yeah i think that's in currently well i don't know currently but the last time i looked at the eater new york there were uzbek restaurants out Mm. in queens on there there were food carts on it and then there were of course the really super high-end you know three michelin star places so it's a huge range on the eater trips and I are planning a trip right now abroad, and we're going to be on holiday at the 1st of September. And again, we're using Eater as a good way to figure out where to go. I should also say that um, if you're going to a city, you might want to search out Instagram and use the hashtag of, let's say, let's say, uh, I don't know, you're going to Boston. Use the hashtag Boston Restaurants and Mm -hmm. see what comes up for Boston Restaurants because you can find all kinds of great ideas about restaurants. And look through the pictures of people who've hashtagged that restaurant try to avoid the restaurant's own pictures <laughs> um, those are taken by professional photographers with controlled lighting and all that kind of stuff you can tell you can tell whether it's me taking a picture you know with my finger in the shot or whether it's a professional shot that's lit and all that stuff look through what people have posted for boston restaurants or wherever you're headed use that hashtag you're headed to portland maine or portland oregon use hashtags to try to figure out where to eat in these places and you can find like if you're going to portland maine go to the shop for best oysters. oysters best oysters ever skip those other places that are very touristy and popular go to the shop up on Monjoy hill i promise you it's the best around and be creative because when you look at your hashtags you could say boston restaurants but you can also get even more specific you could say best boston burgers you know you could say killer yeah. boston steak you yeah. could you can come up with whatever you're in the mood for put that in and see what comes up and mark's right ignore the pictures by the restaurant yeah. same thing like on TripAdvisor. Yeah. you you do that with hotels ignore every photo the hotel puts up there Correct. and look only at the the pictures Correct. from people who've Correct. stayed there and i should say there are tons now of youtube videos mm-hmm. that are restaurant tours of cities you can find all kinds of down and dirty places as well as high-end places you can easily find restaurant 
guides. For example, we know Jacqueline Church works Boston and particularly the Boston Asian area and she offers food tours of that area. You can find her online and book one of her food tours of Boston Asian restaurants. And let me say one more thing before we pass out of this segment. You should help others Mm. by posting and tagging photos of your meals at restaurants because this will actually help if you tag the restaurant as well as tag, I don't know, Boston restaurants, Chicago restaurants, Connecticut restaurants, you know, wherever you are, Warwickshire restaurants. (laughs) I don't know where you are. If you tag the photos appropriately, then the rest of us can find and you can help us find decent places to eat. And don't forget to make reservations because when you travel, you have to have reservations. Otherwise, you're going to be disappointed even if you're in the car and driving somewhere and you ask siri and you look it up and you think it's good call them and ask if they're open call them if they have a table otherwise you might waste your time i'm just gonna say that when bruce and i go on vacation we have a restaurant reservation for every single night and it is true sometimes we don't keep them sometimes we will be walking along and see a restaurant we want to try maybe we'll go in and ask to look at the menu during the afternoon we'll make a reservation we'll go there and we'll cancel the reservation for the place we have don't forget to cancel Uh your reservation Always. Always treat restaurants with respect. However, we never go into particularly metropolitan areas like uh, London or um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. We never go to these places without a restaurant reservation for every night, even though we may not keep those reservations. I think we even, last summer after my dad died and I needed a trip where I could just completely decompress, we went up to Moosehead Lake in Maine, in Greenville, Maine. And I think we even had reservations every Every night at like the pizza place and the fried fish and chips place, but we did. Greenville, Maine. quite honestly, one night we went to this place and they were turning people away. And it was just like, you know, a deep fried chicken wing place, but they turned people away. But we got in because we we had a reservation. And don't forget also, and a final thing, to just ask locals. It always helps to ask the locals. If you're having a beer at a bar and, I don't know, there's a couple, one seat down from you and they seem like locals, just reach over and say, hey, can I ask you one question? Where would you reach? I mean, like with your hands, like touch? And lean over. How's that? (laughs) Don't touch people. Um, lean over and say if you know if you had to go out tomorrow night where would you go and see what they say always ask locals because locals always have the best knowledge and again be discerning don't just go where they say to go if it doesn't sound like a place depends if they're offering to take you and pay then go (laughs) then go but if you know if you don't if you don't know you don't know i'm gonna give you an example about this we haven't lived in new york in 16 years and uh, a couple years ago we went in before the pandemic for my birthday and spent the birth my birthday in new york and i wanted to eat in brooklyn now i want to tell you 16 years is a long time and brooklyn has changed (laughs) significantly in 16 years to become a super upscale I didn't know where to go. So the photographer who shoots most of our books lives in Brooklyn. And I asked him, I said, where should I go for my birthday? He pointed out this fabulous Montreal Bistro. We made a reservation. We went there for my birthday. But again, I asked a local, somebody who lives in Brooklyn and eats in Brooklyn every day of his life, practically, and knows exactly where to go. So... 
Before we go on to our next segment, which is our one-minute cooking tip, let me ask you to subscribe to this podcast. If you don't mind, drop a rating for it. That'd be really helpful. And then even a comment like, great podcast on Audible or Apple Podcasts will make all the difference in the world for us. We are unsupported. This is not a podcast that has a sponsor, nor does it have a network behind it. So we would appreciate a little help in just pushing our algorithm a little higher. Okay. On to our one-minute cooking tip. This is more a one-minute dining out tip than a cooking tip. But a lot of us can't eat a lot of things. So when you go to a restaurant, let your server know about any food intolerances before you order. Rather than like pick a dish and then tell them what you can't eat. No. Ask them what they might suggest that you pick. That way you'll have the best dining experience in the restaurant possible if the chef and the waiters can figure out what on the menu will work for you rather than trying to concoct something on your own. Bruce is now talking about a restaurant in which there's actually a chef back there Mm -hmm. who is preparing a dish in a skillet or whatever from scratch. And in this case, if you say up front... I can't eat, now name it, dairy. I can't eat sesame seeds. I can't, let me have a friend who has a really strange and anaphylactic reaction to sunflower seeds. So, you know, he has to ask in advance about sunflower seeds and that you just ask that in advance and then say, well, what do you recommend? And I think that's the kick is what do you recommend? Yeah, take the recommendation rather than trying to fix up a dish that looks good to you, but it doesn't work for you. Let them figure it out for you. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Molly Gilbert, the author of Sheet Pan Sweets. She has got tons of ways to make delicious decadent sweets on sheet pans in the oven. Today, I'm talking to Molly Gilbert. She is the author of the incredibly popular book, Sheet Pan Suppers. And now she's back with a new book out this fall called Sheet Pan Sweets, Simple Streamlined Dessert Recipes. Hey, Molly, thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And you know that your book is going to be near and dear to our hearts because Mark and I have written a sheet cake book. We love doing desserts this way. What I love is that you divided the book up into six ways to bake with your sheet pan. So it's much more than just cakes. You cover pies, rolled cakes, cookies, even breads. Do you have a personal favorite sweet to make in a sheet pan? Well, I have a massive sweet tooth, so I don't discriminate all that all that much. Um, but I do love a sheet cake. There's just something so nostalgic and simple about a sheet cake. It like it's hard to mess up. But yeah, I mean, doing this book gave me the opportunity to play around, and you know, slab pies are amazing. They're maybe a little bit more work. Um, obviously cookies on a sheet pan is easy and fun. And I love the bar section too, because you can make so many bars on one sheet pan. Is there a trick to baking with a sheet pan that you could share with people who normally make standard cakes? Is there anything that they need to know before they start down this road with you? It's pretty straightforward. I have to say, I mean, you know, if you are used to baking in a regular pan, it's kind of similar. You want to make sure you use that nonstick spray or butter and line it with some parchment um, to make sure it comes out easily. But also just keep an eye on it in the oven because since its surface area is so big, <laughs> it'll cook fairly quickly. So yeah, just keep keep your eye on it while it's in there. And just to be clear, I'm going to ask you to define what you're calling a sheet pan for your book, Sheet Pan Sweets. When 
professional cooks say sheet pan, they mean these giant 18 by 36 sheets. In the book, we use half sheet pans, which are half the size. So they are uh, basically 13 by 18 with a small like one inch lip around the edge. Are they easy to find? Super easy to find. Any any cooking store worth their salt should have a sheet pan in stock. Your rolled cakes are absolutely beautiful, especially what caught my eye was the mint chocolate chip meringue roll. I don't know about everyone else, but my first instinct when I think of meringue is crunchy. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the meringue you have in your book for your orange and cream mini pavlovas, a baked meringue. So tell me about the rolled meringue dessert and why it works so well and how you came up with doing it that way. Yeah, well, I have to give credit to Zoe Francois for the idea for this recipe. Um, she, I just love all of her work and she makes the most beautiful desserts. And in her latest book, Zoe Bakes, there's a recipe for, it's like a stewed rhubarb rolled meringue. And I just thought the idea was so genius because it really sort of highlights the marshmallowy soft, you know, with some crunchy bits on the outside part of a meringue, which I just love. But yeah, it's, it's similar to making a regular kind of pavlova or meringue, but you spread the meringue out on a sheet pan and it bakes pretty gently so that when it comes out, you can roll it with cream and it takes so well to different flavor combinations. I just thought a mint chocolate chip version would be really fun. It looks absolutely delicious. Can't wait to make one. What I also can't wait to make baked butter mochi squares recipe. <laughs> just tell me how great these are. <laughs> I love butter mochi. They're fairly new to me, um, but I, what I love about them is their simplicity. It's just like mixing up you know, a batch of brownies or something, but they come out super bouncy and moist. And I just love the texture. It's sort of unlike most other desserts, especially desserts that you can cook on a sheet pan. But yeah, you, you whisk up this batter like a brownie and it, you can use different dairies. I use coconut milk in mine. It takes well to different variations. You can sprinkle fresh coconut on top or dried coconut on top, or you can just skip that and kind of have it plain and simple. You know, the dairy flavor is really strong. There's some like really good vanilla flavor in there. And the texture to me is just sort of sets it apart. For people who don't know what mochi is to begin with, can you explain what goes into it and why it's so bouncy and has a great texture? So the butter mochi is in the bar section of my book. And what it is, it's almost like a mix between a custard and a bar. There are eggs and like I said, a bunch of different dairies involved. And then you use some sweet rice flour, which is the one ingredient that it's not hard to find, but it wasn't something that I kept in my pantry all the time, just like regular flour, but it is um, very easy to find. If not at your local grocery store, you can buy it online. Um, and it's just this really delicate, fine flour that gives this, like I, I keep saying bouncy, it's sort of like the one word I can use to describe it, but it's very just soft and moist and it's delicious. Your blueberry muffin cake is something else that caught my eye. What a lifesaver for people with lots of company and limited muffin pans. Is it as easy to make as it looks? It is. It's just like whipping up regular blueberry muffins, but instead of kind of standing and scooping each one into the different cups, you can just spread the batter out on the pan um, crumble that. I mean, it has to have a streusel topping, at least in my, in my world. So crumble the streusel topping on top and slide it right in the oven. So how many people can you feed out of that one cake? So many people. You can feed at least, I would say at least 24 people, depending on how big or small you cut your slices. And I'm a professional. I don't have that many muffin tins. So that would definitely work for me. 
And one of the things I love about sheet cakes is the cake to icing ratio. There's so much a sea of icing. And you make it even better for me by adding multiple icings on a couple of desserts like your dozen donut cake. Just I love the sound of that. What is it and what inspired that recipe? I love going to a donut shop and just getting like an assorted box full of donuts. Nothing makes me happier than like opening that lid, seeing all the different flavors and smelling all the different glazes. And I wanted that experience in sheet cake form. So what it is, it's like a sort of nutmeg spiced cake that gets brushed with the melted butter, just like a donut kind of flavor. And then I glaze it with a chocolate glaze, a vanilla glaze, and then some powdered sugar and some cinnamon sugar, all in different stripes to make it sort of mimic opening that box of donuts and feeling that magic. I have to ask, there's one savory recipe in the book for a simple focaccio. Why did you decide to add this to a collection of sweets? I just think that this focaccia is so simple and easy that I just wanted everyone to know how easy it is to bake on a sheet pan. And I think it takes so well to different flavors, um, many of them savory. Uh, I have a couple of options in there for like tomatoes with thyme or za'atar, um, but you could also kind of go sweet with it as well and slather it with some like sweetened ricotta or something. And I just think it's so versatile and so simple. I, I really wanted to include it. I think it's a great recipe for everyone to have in their repertoire. Molly Gilbert, her new book coming out this fall, Sheet Pan Sweets, Simple Streamlined Dessert Recipes. Molly, thanks for sharing a few minutes and talking about your new book with us. Thank you so much, Bruce. Okay, she definitely was in on the first of a big trend with sheet pan suppers, and it seems like sheet pan sweets are a trend, something that people want to do. Sheet cakes are more popular than ever. I grew up with them as a Texas boy, but more popular than ever. We even wrote a book about sheet cakes and slab pies. So terrific interview. That was great, Bruce. So let's move on to our last segment. What's making us happy in food this week? Okay. What's I, making you happy? Mike? Well, what's making me happy in food this week is homemade rice noodles. <laughs> uh, Bruce, my brother and family were here for a week, and my brother is gluten intolerant. And Bruce actually made homemade rice noodles for for what you make. I made chow beef chow fun. Yeah, you made chow fun. And it was... Let me tell you that I, at the end of it, said, and this is horrific to say, I will only eat rice noodles in homemade form from now on. Me too, so that's they, fine. <laughs> they were, they are astounding. It is a complicated process of making a very, very wet, I can't even say it's a batter. It's almost like a solution, right? Well, it actually has like the consistency of like half and half, of like a, of a cream, of a milky cream. Yeah. And, and it, what's it made out of? It's made out of water, tapioca starch, and rice flour. Okay. So, and those things, and then you pour that into pans, Bruce, use nine inch square pans, and put them in a wok and steam each pan. If you pour just a little bit. Quarter in, cup. Right? Just a tiny bit in, spread it around the pan, and then put it in the steamer for a few minutes, and then it sets up. You pull it out like a gelatinous sheet and cut it into noodles. It's just an amazing process. I I want to tell everybody that when Bruce first started making homemade rice noodles, he informed me how, quote, easy they were, unquote. And I'm like, uh, Pizza Hut is easy. Uh, McDonald's is easy. This does not seem 
easy. Okay, but given where we live, it's an hour drive to yes. the nearest place where I could buy even refrigerated rice noodles. So I'm not going to very very. I can't rural. get fresh rice noodles unless I make them. So that's the way it goes. We live in very very rural New England. I don't think most people know that. I think the people think of the East Coast and they think that everything is jammed, and they don't realize that the civilization in the East Coast is all along the seaboard. Yeah. And once you come inland, it's no longer it thickly ex- settled. Yeah, it is. It is distinctly rural in inner New England. Okay, so what's making you happy in this? Something else I served for your brother and family when they were here, and that's smoked uncured ham and i know Uh. it sounds generic but i ordered a ham to make sure it was gluten-free from mark's brother from wildforks.com and i got this amazing boneless cured smoked delicious ham delivered overnight the price was like half of what most other delivery services were for these things and quite honestly the same price per pound if i bought deli ham at stop and shop Mm. and we ate it all week Mm. the kids loved it Mm. i mean bailey our niece was eating it every day for lunch with my homemade pickles on a sandwich Mm -hmm. it was just but there was so much and listen there were four of them and two of us and it's still at the end of the week, Bruce and I were eating ham and eggs for lunch for a couple of days after mm-hmm. he left. So it was a really great find. Where did you get it? What? Wildforks.com. Wildforks.com. Okay, check that out. Um, it, it was, uh, we're not doing any sponsorship for them nope. and they're not paying for this plug, but nope. check them out and check out the uncured smoked hams on their site okay so that's the podcast for this week again you can connect with us on social media in any way that you see fit twitter instagram or facebook there's a group on facebook cooking with bruce and mark we would be glad to see you there you can share your restaurant tips and in fact if you ever went to cooking with bruce and mark and dropped a recommendation for a restaurant we we would dance at your next wedding so if you have a favorite restaurant go there drop a reference to a favorite restaurant of yours and let's get a conversation started otherwise we will see you next time on cooking with bruce and mark